So at the end of last year, in the fall, there was another study. It was a systematic review and meta-analysis of the effects of menopause hormone therapy on the risk of Alzheimer's disease and dementia by Neratini and Group, right? So Neratini, Moscone. This is a comprehensive evaluation of the impact of hormone replacement therapy and the risk of Alzheimer's disease and dementia, and it included over 6 million women. Welcome to the Menopause Mastery Podcast, a show for women just like you who are ready for more health, vitality, passion, living life with a purpose. I created this show because I knew that women just like me in this second season of life, the season of menopause, are really tapping into their deepest desires. And we're ready to harness our physical and mental health and explore what our true passions are and peel back the layers to uncover exactly what we want out of life. I'm your host, Betty Murray, part geek, part magician, and your new medical bestie with a dash of sass. I love taking the complex science and making it easier to integrate into daily life. So let's join the journey to make this season the best ever. Still having a period, but you're feeling out of whack and you suspect your hormones might be playing tricks on you? It's time to get the lowdown on estrogen dominance with my free ebook. It is the no-nonsense guide to understanding estrogen dominance, how it contributes to pesky weight gain, abnormal, heavy, or painful periods, fibroids, and more. Say goodbye to the guesswork and hello to clarity. Dash on over to ed.hormoneshelp.com, grab your free copy, and get started on your journey to better health. Your body will thank you. Welcome back to Menopause Mastery. So today, I want to go into the research a little bit with you. We're going to compare two studies, two studies looking at hormone replacement therapy and the risk for dementia and Alzheimer's. Uh, we're going to include these two for several reasons. They conflict with each other, number one. And number two, I have had a lot of questions because they do conflict with each other. So I want to walk through both of these studies and really help you understand the nuances so you can be an educated consumer of your health. So the first one is, there's a study done by the Danish Dementia Research Center. Specifically, the name of the study is Dementia in Women Using Estrogen-Only Therapy. So this study aimed to really investigate the association between estrogen-only therapy and the incidence of dementia among women who had also gone through a hysterectomy. So that means women had a complete hysterectomy. And at the time they assessed overall activity, they were somewhere between 50 and 60 years old in the year 2000. So let me explain why they did this. So the average age at the time they did this study, the median age of hysterectomy was 43 years old. And they picked women age 50 to 60 in the year 2000. So they had they only included women. So if the women were 45 in the year 2000, they were excluded from this group. And the reason why is dementia is not something that shows up generally in a young age. So we have to actually go backwards in time to judge where that woman would have been to look forward now to 2023, 2024, and look at dementia risk because dementia shows up much later in life, mostly in our 80s and onward. And so the women on average were 43 years old when they had their hysterectomy, and they were somewhere between 50 and 60 in the year 2000. Now, this study utilized a particular design called nested case-controlled 
and it used the National Danish Registry. So they have socialized care. So the National Danish Registry contains healthcare information about the population in the Danish population. So it followed 29,104 women and they looked at two outcomes. So when you look at a study, you have to have an outcome in which you're measuring against. So what they used to judge dementia diagnosis are two things. Number one, if they were diagnosed with dementia. And number two, did they fulfill a anti-dementia medication prescription at some time during this time period? Right? The majority is if they fulfilled a dementia medication prescription. So an integral part of this study also included a thing called hazard ratios as a measure to compare the risk of developing dementia between the treatment group and the untreated group, or what they call the control group. So a hazard ratio is pretty fundamental for like survival analysis, provides a measure of how much risk a particular event may have in, in a specific point in time. And so if a hazard ratio is greater than one, it means it was had a greater risk. If the hazard ratio is less than one in the treatment group compared to the control group, it has a lesser risk or may actually be protective. In the context of this study, hazard ratios were employed to quantify the association between estrogen-only therapy and the risk of developing dementia based on their filling of a prescription of a dementia medication. In the context of an epidemiological clinical study, this is often used, right? This is one of our best ways to sort of understand survival analysis. So let me make sure you understand this. So a hazard ratio equal to one means there's no root difference in risk between the two groups, right? Treatment or non-treatment. If the hazard ratio is less than one, that suggests a lower risk of an event occurring in the treatment group compared to the control group. So let's do another hypothetical. Let's say it's a therapeutic trial with a hazard ratio of less than one, and that would mean that it had a significant effect in reducing risk, right? So if I was looking at, let's say, a heart disease medication or cardiovascular disease medication, and the hazard ratio was, let's say, 0.5, that means that medication had a 50% improvement in potential risk of disease. So it was protective. If the hazard ratio was greater than one, that implies a higher risk of an event occurring in the treatment group compared to control. So take that same hypothetical. If they were looking at a medication for cardiovascular disease, and let's say it had hazard ratio of two, then that would indicate, hey, they have a greater risk in the treatment group compared to the control group. So a good hazard ratio is one that's significantly less than one. A bad hazard ratio would be one that's significantly greater than one, suggesting again that the treatment might be contributing to a disease risk. So the Danish study reported a hazard ratio of all users of estrogen-only therapies. So this included estrogen oral therapy in the form of mostly premin, which is conjugated oral estrogen, and also topical estradiol replacement. So they actually is one of the few that included a topical preparation. And then they compared it to groups of non-users, no hormone replacement ever. The study reported a hazard ratio of 1.55. For all users of estrogen therapy, what was interesting is this study then reported that it's nuanced by the length of duration of usage with a hazard ratio of 1.49 for women who use the therapy for five years or less 
and a hazard ratio of 1.62 who used it for more than five years. And additionally, the study found that the risk of dementia increased with a rising dose of estradiol. So the higher the dose went, the higher risk. And so the oral estradiol had a hazard ratio of 1.62. Confounding, the transdermal estradiol showed a hazard ratio of 1.39. So they still showed a negative effect, but that the transdermal was considerably less. And you're like, Betty, 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 (laughs) you've been talking about how helpful hormones are for all-cause mortality and dementia risk. This study would say otherwise, right? So let's talk about what some of the critiques of this study have been and how you have to now put on a deeper lens and look at the data. So one of the things that I get very frustrated by is most of the studies that get done, only 15% get published, right? So there's a lot of studies that don't ever get published. And some of that is publication bias. You get a lot of influence by advertisers and what actually gets published. There's also pressure in funding situations for researchers to find something that is the people paying for it because they won't get funding, right? There's so much wrong, particularly in the United States, on how our research gets funded. And one of the other things, and this is true in all research, is it is very hard unless you put somebody in like a clinical setting and keep them confined to get rid of an account for what we call confounding variables, right? Confounding variables are things that might influence the outcome of the study results and might also influence that hazard ratio exclusive to the replacement of therapy or not, right? And you have to actually look at those and then judge whether the findings of the study actually really fit, right? So the first and probably the largest confounding variable that might really affect the outcome of the study is number one, Dementia diagnosis is difficult. A lot of times it happens in a primary care environment, and you and I both know what that's like. It's 10 minutes with your provider. It doesn't involve any diagnostics. We're not looking at brain imaging. We're not looking at diagnostic studies. We don't have surrogate markers for dementia. We don't have a blood test that can say, this is dementia. And so it's the primary diagnosis was conducted in a primary care setting with a lack of diagnosis. The other thing that we see is that when the qualifier of diagnosis for dementia is the fulfilling of a medication prescription and not a true diagnosis, you have to question whether that's really truly what's going on, right? So again, if we look at that, we go, okay, so this study looked at women using estrogen only orally and transdermally, and the dementia risk, and the maximum A's that the women were when they did the estrogen replacement, the ones that used therapy was up until the age of 55. So again, you got to remember that hysterectomy average age was 43. They only did therapy for a few years. So let's pull this apart. The scope of the data collection. So again, if we look at that prescription record, And they encountered, so the prescription record also included two years before the diagnosis of dementia to diminish reverse causation bias, right? So the study relied on prescription records up to two years before the diagnosis. So if the doctor prescribed something, even without a diagnosis, they counted that data. So it may not fully account for potential confounding variables. So things like other lifestyle stuff, were they smokers? Did they have hypertension? Were they obese? Did they drink? 
genetic predisposition, none of those conditions were captured or accounted for in the study. You have to try and at least account for them or discuss them heavily. So that allows the people who are reading the study to then contextualize how strong the data association that's being presented really makes sense. So there's a lack of contextualization, right? Again, those hazard ratios need to be contextualized within that broader scope and landscape of the patient factors. And it leaves a lot to be misinterpreted. The study findings, even if taken at face value without considering this broader context, could lead to some serious misinterpretation and potentially inappropriate clinical decisions. And actually, this group mentioned that this study just up the need for a more comprehensive analysis, an analysis that's called a systematic review or a meta-analysis that would integrate all the available data known to this time in a more comprehensive understanding of the relationship between dementia risk, hormone replacement, or not. And they even recommended that this should not be used for clinical decision-making because this is a single study and it didn't match previous studies. Have you been feeling off? You know what? Your hormones might be out of whack. Take my quiz to discover your personalized hormone imbalance and get a free report with your results. Learn what's really going on with your hormones and start feeling like yourself again. Just visit the website quiz.hormoneshelp.com to take the hormone quiz now. So the critique really underscores the importance of a bigger analysis, a bigger understanding of the relationship between dementia risk and hormone replacement. Again, this Danish study does suggest that maybe there is some risk, but again, we've got to look at a bigger data set and a bigger swath of information with better controls to know that. So at the end of last year, in the fall, there was another study. It was a systematic review and meta-analysis of the effects of menopause hormone therapy on the risk of Alzheimer's disease and dementia by Neratini and group, right? So Neratini, Moscone, this is a comprehensive evaluation of the impact of hormone replacement therapy and the risk of Alzheimer's disease and dementia, and it included over 6 million women. And so let me give a little explanation of how these studies work, because these studies are conducted to give clinical recommendations based on the body of knowledge we have up until this time. So they did a literature review looking at studies in PubMed, Medline, Web of Science, and Cochrane databases, starting in 1975 through July of 2023. This process allowed for over 5,500 papers to be evaluated and identified. And then you sort of pair back. Sometimes there's duplications of publications because things will get published in multiple journals. 51 studies or reports were included in this analysis. And there was stringent criteria. So this included it had to be peer-reviewed. It had to be well-defined cohorts and groups, meaning that they did well-controlled recommendations, or not recommendations, well-controlled descriptions of who was in the study and when. The outcome measures of dementia and Alzheimer's had to be more rigorously managed. And the use of specific study designs. So there's different types of designs and there's different type of study designs that allow you to draw stronger conclusions. So not all studies are the same. Randomized controlled trials, case controlled studies, cohort or cross-sectional studies are studies that you can draw more stringent conclusions to. They also needed treatment involving systemic estrogens with and without synthetic progestins. 
and the presence of association estimates with statistical uncertainty measures. So that also means that we have to sort of take those confounding variables and also bring them into the data. So they detailed all the data extraction and looked at the data collection, the hormones used, the clinical endpoints, the hormone therapy characteristics, things that we call covariates. They also used what we call a high confidence interval, which means that the likelihood for chance for the outcome is very, very low. This study used a priori group based on study design and the type of hormone therapy categorization. And there was at least four subgroups of studies reporting comparable outcomes and exposure groups. So what does that mean? So the studies were categorized into four randomized controlled trials, including six different reports. 45 observational studies, which is similar in methodology to the Danish dementia study. The randomized controlled trials included a total of 21,065 women treated and 20,997 untreated placebo patients. Observational studies included 768,866 dementia cases and 5.5 million controls. So huge data sets. So what did they find? The randomized controlled trials in postmenopausal women aged 65 and older demonstrated an increased risk of dementia with hormone replacement therapy compared to placebo. This risk was particularly driven by estrogen plus the synthetic progestin therapy known as PremPro. A big reason why we see this relationship is it's a women's health initiative study that contributes a lot of numbers to the study. And in that study, they found a increased risk. They weren't even looking really at dementia and Alzheimer's at the time, but stroke and heart attack risk in that group, particularly with the synthetic progestins. Although in contrast to that, so if you look at the largest data set, the Women's Health Initiative, and the overall data set used in this entire meta-analysis, using estrogen-only replacement therapy, and this included only oral, there was a decreased risk. It was not a significant effect. There was no effect. So now when you take the observational studies, hormone replacement therapy, there is a protective effect noted with estrogen therapy only. Oral estrogen was protective against dementia at 34%. And if you looked at the women who did estrogen and progesterone, there was an increased risk if initiated much later in life. So one of the major problems with the Women's Health Initiative is the average age at the time of the study was 73. So the women were in their 70s. They were unhealthy. They had hypertension, obesity, and overweight. Almost three-quarters of the women were obese or overweight, had pre-existing health conditions, previous smokers, had never done hormone replacement therapy. So they initiated therapy in their 70s, long after menopause. And the arm that had taken... Premarin and PremPro, so synthetic progestins and Premarin, showed an increased risk in cardiovascular event. And this study also showed that it doesn't have a protective effect in an older group and may actually increase that risk if you initiate it much later in life. However, that in the observational studies, the estrogen-only therapy was protective. Again, if we look across the entire meta-analysis, initiating hormone replacement with estrogen-only orally reduced the risk of dementia at 34%, especially when it was started early. So these findings really highlight the need for renewed research, right? You know, this is my hill, I'm dying on it. The reality is we're not little hairy men. 
Our hormones make a big difference on how our body operates, on what our body does, and our risk for all cause mortality, but especially dementia and Alzheimer's because we have greater risk than men. And it is not just because we live longer. The reality is we carry a greater risk because of that change in estrogen and progesterone and the act of menopause. So what else does this also mean? So there's a discrepancy between those randomized controlled trials and observational studies. So that also points to the complexity of trying to look at hormone replacement therapy and its effects, and we have to interpret these studies carefully. What I love about this meta-analysis is its methodology, its sound, the criteria in which they use to include studies, exclude studies, and then drive down to the answers on the data is very sound. And they used a comprehensive and systematic approach to assess this relationship between hormone therapy and dementia risk. Rigorous data analysis and methods and careful consideration for variations in the study data. And basically it points to this as a nuanced and complex issue. And it really underscores the importance of considering timing when we do hormone replacement therapy and the earlier we engage in it, the better. I like to think of it as our receptors for these hormones are kind of like flowers, and the longer they are not being watered with hormones, the more they dry up, and we may lose some of those benefits. And it also underscores the importance of the type of hormone therapy. We don't have good, reliable studies looking at newer preparations, the topical preparations, the preparations that are estradiol only or bioidentical progesterone only, both oral and topical or biased, which is a combination of estriol and estradiol. We don't have good studies looking at those. And again, there's a lot of that is financial bias. Simple fact is those are bioidentical. They're not patentable. No drug manufacturer wants to drop a couple million dollars. So it really requires outside dollars to do that. And it really makes us look at it from a research community and say, okay, we need to standardize our methodology. We should strive for more standardization so we can get uniform measures and outcome criteria so we can actually judge the outcomes. Meaning, if you're going to call a diagnosis, we better have surrogate markers and other ways in which to figure out if this person's been diagnosed or not. Diagnoses of primarily opinion make it very hard to say, is this really true or not? And we have to just underscore and look at that each woman is unique. And in general, if we have these studies to give general recommendation, the reality is in clinical practice, we have to look at the individual in front of us, right? I don't prescribe. I look at the data, I look at the research, and I report on it, right? I own a clinic and we have prescribers in that clinic. But the reality is we need to also look at this data and pull it apart. When we look at the data, particularly coming out of the Women's Health Initiative, we have to put the lens on they started therapy so late, more than a decade past menopause. And if we can take anything from all of these studies, it's the earlier we institute hormone replacement, the better and the more likely we are to see positive aspects. Now, whether introducing it later in life truly is more risk-provoking, I think still remains to be elucidated. We know that synthetic progestins in particular carry blood clotting risks and cardiovascular risk in young women all the way through older women. That's why we have black box warnings on progestin-only medications, particularly oral. So it's hard to look at this data and strip out the risk of dementia that's vascular. 
a lot of people struggling with what looks like an Alzheimer's or dementia diagnosis is truly vascular, meaning that the brain is being atrophied and starved of oxygen because of basically loss of blood flow to the very extreme parts of the brain in the small capillary structure in the brain. So we need more data. We need data on topical preparations. We need more methodologies that are sound to look at that. And I think applying this to clinical practice, I think the ultimate real answer is that we need continued research and we need to personalize the approach to the women in front of you, right? If you're a provider, a practitioner, and you've got somebody in front of you, this is about that person. And you can use the meta-analysis to inform your decision, but it's still about the person in front of you because there's too many other variables that may contribute to risk and or make risk much less one way or the other. And it really is the complexity of the individual patient. You know, Peter Atia, I love Peter Atia. He's pretty technical for the average person. And we have the capacity to personalize today through DNA, through laboratory testing and other things. Population-wide treatment is no longer necessary. We can do N of one treatment because we have the capacity to do that today. And to me, that's what this information also says, is that your practitioner should be looking at you as an individual, not as a data set. And so I hope this was helpful for you. I hope it helped you understand that, number one, the data are nuanced and it's hard to draw conclusions off of a single study. I think the meta-analysis conducted by Narutini and Moscone's group really was rigorous and should at least inform the next couple years as we get better data. And that you know, it's time for us to start funding women's health. And so if you have questions, you want to know more, leave some information in the comments. I'd love to answer them. I oftentimes get the ideas for podcasts based on feedback from either social media, you know, I'm on Instagram or other places. You can definitely drop me a message there or even LinkedIn. And I listen to all of those. And if I can ask you two favors, you see the little subscribe button, subscribe so you don't miss the next episode. And then I would love it. If you could leave me a review, particularly a five-star would be fabulous because that's how we get more listeners. So if this was a great podcast, thank you so much for listening. Please do those things for me and I will be back with you next week. Thank you so much for tuning in to the Menopause Mastery Podcast. You are why I'm here and I am so very grateful. Hit subscribe so you don't miss any wisdom on creating the most exceptional life on our terms. If this episode has helped you in any way, please share it with a friend to spread the love and together we rise. You can follow me on social media at Betty Murray PhD and you can reach me online at BettyMurray.com. 